0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth.
1: Hi, this is Women Who Travel, a podcast from Conde Nast Traveler. I'm your host, Lale Arikoglu, and with me, as always, is my co host. Oh, it's me, Meredith. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. And today we're doing a special episode where we are focusing our attention on our Facebook group, the group that inspired this very podcast to be made in the first place. And we have decided to answer some of the group's most frequently asked questions. With me today is our Associate City Guides Editor, Betsy Blumenthal. Hi our uh, Deputy Digital Director and Resident mom, Laura Redman. <laughs> <laughs> also known as the only mom.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Hi.
1: And Megan Spurrell, our community editor and women who travel meetup genius.
3: Oh, oh, wow. <laughs> Hello. That take should go the on your business I will card take yeah. that. <laughs> yes, thank you.
2: And these are really frequently asked questions, like get them more than twice.
3: Yeah,
4: definitely. I mean, I think that most of the questions that we're gonna go over today are Just stuff that comes up in the group all the time. And you know, when you join, we ask that you search in the group to just double check and make sure your question hasn't already been answered. But these are definitely like the most burning questions that the lovely women in our group have uh, most often. And I'm gonna start with kind of a softball because I think we all have like pretty similar answers to this one, and good answers, which is uh, Hannah J. asked, what's the best place to find dirt cheap flights to anywhere in the US? No destination in mind. Figured I'd let the price decide for me, which is the best way to get a flight deal,
2: if I might add, brilliant Hannah. Mm-hmm. I like
3: Hannah's approach. Uh, anyone have
2: <laughs> tips? Okay, I know, Mayor, that you're kind of the resident expert here on flight deals. You've written about it a lot for us. But I have one that's a little offbeat. It's called Fairness. Um, It's a website that launched, oh, God, I think I met with them like four years ago now. And if you have no idea where you want to go but you have a base airport, for me it would be one of the tri-state area airports, you plug that in and then maybe you put in, I want a beach, and it'll give you – the best flight deals it has at that moment or within the coming months using that flight matrix that Google Flights also uses, where it can predict what the price range will be. And then it'll give you some options across the US, around the world. You can set boundaries for it if you want, if you just want to do domestic or maybe domestic in Mexico. Um, I, I play around with that. It's kind of my like little inspo flight calculator.
4: Yeah, and I would say that Google Flights has something that's similar which is just their map feature. So if you just type in, again, the place that you're leaving from, uh, which hopefully you know, um, and you click the map button or the search button and then the map button, it'll show you the flight prices for the date range that you've put in. You have to pick a date range, which is kind of the like, you know, more restrictive part of it. But it'll show you, like, a map of the US with the lowest airfares to all of the major cities and a few of the smaller ones. And you can kind of click around and see what works best for you. I'd also say Airfare Watchdog has a long weekends calculator, uh, which is awesome and super easy to use. Uh, So if you're planning something at the last minute, that's usually my go-to. Do you guys have any extras?
1: Well, I was actually going to ask a question, which is that obviously looking for the cheap flight and then deciding your destination after you've seen the cheap flight is a great way to go. But if you are having to plan a trip to a specific place, um, how do you find those deals? Should you be booking months and months in advance? Should you kind of dance on the edge of danger and (laughs) um, leave it up to the
4: last minute? My metric is if it's an event like a wedding or a family reunion, something you can't miss, you should book it when the price is what you feel comfortable with paying. It might not be the lowest you could possibly ever find, but if you want to get there, it's not in your best interest to wait because that deal might never come and then you're going to end up paying more. If it's something that you're a little more flexible on, you know, you're starting to plan a vacation or, you know, starting to think about doing something with a group of friends or your partner, downloading Hopper, the app, and putting mm-hmm. flight trackers on. Google Flights also has flight trackers. It can let you know. You know, send you an alert when the price has dropped or when it's expected to drop because it does a bunch of machine learning to kind of mess around with the algorithm that most flight trackers and flight search engines use. So they can kind of guess based on previous years when the flights are going to drop. And Megan, you just got a really great flight deal, right?
3: Well, I actually, since yeah. I've started working here, and it, you know, like Meredith knows a lot about different flight deals that are going out, and we, publish different ones, like when they're really great and they go in our newsletter. And when I've had friends ask me this question about how to find cheap flights, I'm literally like, you should subscribe to our newsletter. Because (laughs) all my best tips are I hear in the morning when we're talking about the stories for the day, and it's like this really great flight sale that JetBlue is having. Or the one I booked, which is the Norwegian Air annual flight deal to Guadeloupe and Martinique in the French Caribbean. If you don't know where they are, I don't really either. But I'm going in March (laughs) because the flight was $160 round trip. But, yeah, $160 round trip. And it's really fun because it's part of France, so all the emails they're sending me are like, get ready for your trip to France. And I'm like, what a steal. (laughs) Um, But, and I've talked to people, and it sounds like a beautiful place to visit, and it's an amazing deal. But I think, like, those flight deals are great because you guys have kind of sifted through them already. And, yeah, like, just whenever there are sales, like, I saw that sale happen the year before, and I didn't do it. And then, to your point, it disappeared. And when it came around a year later, I wanted to jump on it because... I knew that it would be gone again in 24 hours.
2: I mean, you should subscribe. If you have airlines you love, you should subscribe to their newsletters, too. Mm-hmm. You can become a member. JetBlue gives you updates on their deals constantly. Oh, my gosh. They have a sale, like, every week and a half. Yeah. And
3: it's, like, $49 or something, and
2: right? And it's an excellent airline. It's not yeah. like, you know, admittedly, you will get good deals on Wow Air pretty frequently, the Icelandic mm-hmm. budget carrier, which may or may not be in business in a year, right? Yeah. <laughs> <So, laughs> Sorry, sorry. Wow, well, but you're admitting to it, too. Um, Norwegian, though, has great deals always. Uh-huh. Alaska Air had a deal recently. Hawaiian has been having... There's been, like, a run on Hawaii flights, right? Because there's more competition right now. Yeah, well, and it's funny because
4: last year this time... Flights to Hawaii were in the 200, 300, so easy to find this year. Like lowest flights, $600, Mm. which is crazy. And I think it's, again, like if you see a flight, especially if you're going with the attitude that Hannah is, which is just like, if it's low, I want to go, which I did not mean to rhyme. Wow, Um,
3: (laughs) I heard that coming.
4: (laughs) But, you know, if you see something and it's low enough that you're like, oh my gosh, I think this is a great deal. And I would really like to go there for this price. Book it. Because you never know if it might come back.
2: Right. And even if you plan well in advance, like I'm not in a position right now to jump on last minute flights anymore. But I look, you know, 30 to 60 days out, I Mm -hmm. think, is a good window for domestic. You need more time for international, obviously. A lot of international flights won't appear more Mm -hmm. beyond six months from the date. So you often can't even plan beyond that. Talk to travel agents, too. They can hook you up. Um, They used to be able to get slight discounts, but at the very least, they can help you in the way that if your flight is canceled, too, they will help rearrange tickets Mm -hmm. for you at a nominal fee. Saving money across (laughs) the board. (laughs) Um, Speaking of
4: traveling with your family, uh, this is kind of an adjacent question from Sneha P. And it's, any ladies in this group married with kids that travel solo without their husbands and children, how do you go about managing your passion for travel without your partner or family? And I feel like since, Laura, you're the only one who's married with kids, (laughs) um, it might be good to open it up to also traveling with partners. So. I know a lot of you guys have done solo trips, for work or not, um, Mm -hmm. without your partner, without your kids. Anybody want to talk about it?
5: Betsy, I feel like you've done quite a lot of solo travel without your partner. (laughs) Yeah, well, I took that big trip to Italy, and it was like 10 days. And I was supposed to go to Paris, but it ended up not working out at the last minute. I was going to see a friend who I'd met when I was living over there and going to school. And at the last minute, she just couldn't. She was in the middle of finals. And I was like, OK, well, fuck. <laughs> um, and so at the, at the very last minute, I booked flights, I think on Ryanair from Charles de Gaulle Airport to Rome. And I was just like, yeah, let's do this. Uh, and so at that point, I knew that I was going to be by myself. I don't think I ever had any hesitation not going with my partner i think there are very few circumstances under which i wouldn't take a trip because he wasn't able to go or he didn't want to go and i really wanted to go like if i really want to go to russia and that's not his beat that's fine (laughs) i'll go to russia you know what i mean like i don't i would i would never and he would never want me to not go somewhere just because he couldn't go so i think for me and and also not having any kids like i can just go wherever whenever
1: (laughs) I had a woman once actually ask me while I was on a trip for work, and we were all in a bar drinking, having a great time. And this woman asked me whether she sort of turned to me. I thought it was quite a judgmental tone. She, she she and she said, "Is your husband okay with you going off on all these trips by yourself?" And I was like, "Well, he gets to travel for his job all the time too, so I don't think it's occurred to either of us that it would be a problem." And I was also. Like you're a woman who's the same age as me. Why are you asking this question? <laughs> right. I
5: thought you were talking about someone older, because no. I, I had that experience in Italy. I did like all of these tours, and I ended up doing this really lovely like home-cooked dinner in Florence with all of these 65-year-old retiree American couples. And they were all just like, oh, so you're Your husband's not here, your boyfriend's not here. And I was like, No, he he couldn't afford it. He didn't want to go. So I just went. And they were all so like aghast. (laughs) I was like, Guys, it's a new day.
3: (laughs) I mean, this comes up like in the group all the time is there's so many women, especially when they first join the group, are kind of dealing with this where they want to travel a lot. And they're, you know, whether it's a partner or friends or, you know, their family, like they just, they want to travel so much more frequently than those people around them. And it's trying to tell people they're leaving them behind because they won't go. (laughs) Um, And I think that's like kind of a recurring theme. But I don't know. From my perspective, like the solo travel trip that I talk about the most, which is a ridiculously long overland journey I took from Rio to Lima, it happened because I was moving to Lima for my boyfriend. And I felt (laughs) like if I'm going to move somewhere for someone, I need to do something before that's just for me. So if this all goes up in flames or whatever, I have something that was mine. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's, that's the perspective so I take. And so far it's worked out. But still, I always was like, then I'll never regret that move because I will have gotten this incredible trip out of it. And that will be like, no one else will be in those memories. It's my thing, so...
1: I suppose one of the things
3: that I take for granted is it's very easy for both me and my
1: partner to travel independently of each other because we don't have children or <laughs> even a pet. So there no <laughs> one has to bear... Do you have a plant? <laughs> yeah, and it, miraculously it's still alive. Um, <laughs> neither of us have to bear the responsibility of taking care of a child or being while the other one is out of the country. And Laura, I'd be really interested to know what it was like the first time you traveled for work alone away from your daughter and your partner after she was born.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, the layers of emotion triple after the kid comes. And I am in in a very healthy, like compromise-driven relationship where we kind of talk about everything. We trade, we share responsibilities and burdens. Um, But after I'd been home, hadn't really traveled other than like a couple road trips for a year. I asked Craig if my husband, if I could take a 10-day a trip to Sydney for my first work trip. So, go big or go home, Laura. Yeah, kind of. It wasn't like I was just easing back into it. I was like, I'm going to go the other side of the country. You guys are going to be fine. The this world. is the trend. <laughs> because
1: wasn't yeah. Australia the first country you went to outside of the U.S.? Yes, it yeah.
2: is. It is. <laughs> it's kind of a safe space in that regard. Um, I know it well. I love it. Even
3: though it's very, very far. It's
2: yeah. very far, so... Um, we talked about it, right? But it, it was kind of my way of reclaiming that part of myself that I hadn't had for a while, and it was thrilling to be able to go so far to a place that I love so much and know that, like, we talked about it for a while. It took a team. My husband had Haley during the week, and then we saw grandparents on weekends, and he took her home, and, and in the meantime, you know, like, the first few days, I felt great. I felt no guilt. You know, I I slept in. I think I slept 15 hours the first day I was there. (laughs) Incredible. (laughs) Um, I do the things that you normally do when you're an independent adult, like go out to meals whenever you want and come and go as I please. And then by about day five, I started to be like, all right, this feels long. What am I doing here? You know, I'm I'm having fun, but I'm just having fun for myself. And I wanted to share these experiences ultimately with Mm -hmm. my husband and my daughter. So I kind of have a a point where the trip flips and it feels way more like work and less like a joy and adventure. So I'm now, I mean, I'm about to, I'm going to have another baby in May. And I wonder what kind of trips I'll take when I have two at home and the responsibility doubles. And, um, you know, I, I miss them. I, I can't help that. But I also love being a travel reporter. It's who I am, right? So I, I try to balance that. And I just talk to my husband about it. And we find windows where it makes sense. And I also exchange trips with him. So he'll like go snowboarding for two or three days by himself. And I stay home. Have you found the two of you are traveling more together than you used to uh we, <laughs> we we used to go away about once a month so we're kind of junkies um so a little less so mm-hmm. but we are traveling as a family more yeah for mm-hmm. sure um we take Haley everywhere everywhere we can um we don't care about how long the flight is we don't care whether or not the place is kid friendly we just kind of go and hope for the best and adjust when we don't get the best so <laughs> <laughs>
4: Uh, Someone that I love following on Instagram is Eva Chen, who works at Instagram. But she travels so much for work and, like, posts about talking to her kids and, like, putting them to sleep on FaceTime Mm -hmm. all the time. And I feel like technology has so aided parents who need to travel for work or want to travel for fun and also want to stay connected with their kids.
2: That's a great idea to do. I mean... Especially if the kid understands what FaceTime is. If they're too young, they're like, "What? You're here?" Wait. And then when you get off the phone, they're just crying for fifteen minutes. Oh god, you, god, you, that's made, terrible. you made things worse. Oh my god. <laughs> no, Eva's probably a pro at this. You know. And um, we'll do another softball question. I'm
1: gonna sort of ease everyone into this from Sarah G, and is what is a basically what is a good souvenir to pick up when you're traveling, one that travels well, doesn't take up a lot of space, that you don't necessarily need like a permanent home to display. I'm assuming that she's a real globetrotter. Mm-hmm. She wants to start collecting, but she doesn't know what to collect.
2: What do you guys like to collect when you're on the road? I bring home a scarf from everywhere I go. Ooh, Ooh I like that. And it could be all different kinds of scarves. It could be a heavy wool one from Germany or like a light little silkish one from Italy or whatever. But. I have a big, big drawer of scarves. Okay. And they pack tiny, and they remind you of the moment.
3: I'm a bad example for this, because most of the things I like to buy when I'm traveling are for my home. It's like giant rugs, yeah. and I buy another duffel bag to bring them back, or things for my walls, or pottery. I picked up a lot of pottery on a recent trip, <laughs> um, which was very challenging to bring yeah, back. Yeah, to say, how <laughs> you pack It that? was so stressful, so because they... It, my bag got all thrown around, and it was still my carry-on, but people were, like, manhandling it. Security, it was annoying. Did um, it survive? It did. It all survived. All right. Um But actually, what I really small thing that I've picked up everywhere forever is postcards. Me too. I lo- Yeah, because yeah. they're so, like, they have a picture of the place. Sometimes they're really cheesy, which is even more fun, and I feel like... You know, when we're shriveled and old, the places will look so different. <laughs> and I, like, picture, like, this is something I'm going to save forever, and I have a box full of the postcards, and I love them so much. So have you the same... displayed them ever, or no? You just kind I of go through them? and but I have them, and sometimes I'll get two, and so mm-hmm. one is, like, for my collection, and the other I'll use for, like, a, when I don't have a birthday card for someone or something, and huh. that's, you know, I feel like the quirky aunt who has the old postcard <laughs> collection, and I love it. not huh. Nonon, but um, I love them. I don't know. I don't display them. I don't know if there's a way that wouldn't feel crazy, but there's so many of them.
5: I've used cork. like I have cork boards at home that I put my postcards on. Mm -hmm. I remember like when I started my first job out of college, I had one of those cubicles with like the walls that you could pin stuff to whatever. And I remember I came in like an hour and a half early on my first day to like put up guys. Seriously, I was like, what, like 22 years old. And I put up like all my postcards and my new bosses came in and they were like, what the fuck? (laughs) Who have we
3: hired? Literally, though, because
5: I, I mean, it it's was like, my like first. She's moving, moving in. let you in? No, seriously. <laughs> and I was so excited to just like have my own space and like have my own cubicle. And I've been collecting postcards probably since I was like 13 because my parents just never gave me any money on like Model UN trips growing up or whatever. And the, literally the only thing I could afford was postcards. But I think it's so nice that you actually voluntarily give people your postcards because I would be like, get, don't like, don't
3: touch. Yeah. Only if I have two. But I also, <laughs> okay. anytime I stay somewhere and they have like they, you know, give you a postcard like in your bill or they leave it in yeah. your room, I'm like, uh huh, for the collection. Yeah, <laughs> I
1: love grabbing ones if if I've been to a restaurant and mm-hmm. they leave a little postcard with the bill. Oh, I love those. I'll keep one of those. I also really like collecting matchboxes from restaurants and bars. Mm, yes. Um which I guess is a bit of a sort of dying art form because you can't smoke in a lot of places. Just go to the Middle East, it's fine. Um, and, and, they'll, and, and it's great because they always have at least the restaurant or bar name, but some of them have really, really fun mm-hmm. designs on them. And like they always, I have like a whole bowl of them. It's getting a bit out of control. But um, they always take me back to that place or that night or mm-hmm. that person you met. I think they're great and they're tiny.
4: I would also say just going back to postcards. One of my sweet friends, Kata, she sends me a postcard, and most of her friends from everywhere she is, and that's like her souvenir for all of us. And it's always like truly such a joy to open my postbox and have like a postcard from halfway around the world. She is long home by then. I have heard about the entire trip, <laughs> but just to think that someone was thinking about me in that moment and. Actually, have a really cute, always cheesy um, souvenir instead of like any sort of gift or anything. I feel like it's also just like a really special um, thing to send to people.
3: Okay, and with that version of it, the time it takes to write all of them and to go figure out the local postal system is a like very <laughs> thoughtful gift because right. I've tried it a couple times and I usually don't repeat it for a <laughs> while. Uh, slightly less thoughtful a bottle of booze
2: from wherever you go, oh, yeah. like a tiny little bottle of whiskey or a bottle of wine or whatever you drink, um, just one, because you can check that, right? Mm-hmm, you can wrap yeah. it in lots of socks and bring it <laughs> in your suitcase. So.
5: One thing I've started doing in the last couple of years also that I've found can be really fun is to buy a book when the writer is from that place and then to have it signed by the person working in that bookstore. Oh, so there's I like, like a bookstore in Savannah called The Book Lady. Oh and my, I... G- Betsy, yeah. this is <laughs> a great uh, idea. Thanks. Um, um, and <laughs> and uh, that's where Flannery O'Connor is from. So I have a collection of Flannery O'Connor short stories with like a book lady stamp in the book. And I just think it's so fun. Like I also have Look Homeward Angel from Asheville in North Carolina. And yeah, I just like I, I love that I, idea. I love that. Uh, yeah, that I is great. That well. Oh, thanks. The,
4: <laughs> the one thing that I pick up always and it started when I was studying abroad because I only could have two bags On the ship that I was on. And so I couldn't like pick up a lot of stuff. Like I couldn't get a lot of souvenirs. And so I really love earrings. And so I thought, but I only had like little tiny, I had like studs and little things. Um, And I made a pact with myself that the only souvenir I was going to buy everywhere, I didn't stick to it, but the only souvenir I was going to buy was a big pair of earrings from every place because. Clothes, I feel like every time I've bought clothes on a trip, I've, like, grown out of them and had to donate them or whatever, and there go those memories. But with jewelry, it's so small, you don't really, like, necessarily grow out of earrings as much. (laughs) And every time that I put them on to wear them to work or to wherever, I always think about the place that I've been. And it's always
3: says a girl wearing really cool earrings. Are those from
4: somewhere? Um, These are, I got them for my birthday from my best friend. So I feel like every pair of earrings that I own now has a story and has a reason that I bought them. Mm -hmm. I don't really buy earrings anywhere but trips now. I do also like buying jewelry when I'm traveling. I've got some some of my favorite jewelry I've
1: bought um, was in Tel Aviv. And I always think of Jaffa when I put it on. And (laughs) it's a great way to transporting you to a place.
0: Hey, it's Chris Klemek here. If you like this show, you might enjoy There's More to That. It's a new podcast from Smithsonian Magazine and PRX where I'll be talking to journalists around the globe, taking inspiration from the Smithsonian Institution's museums and research centers and using insightful reporting to explore the mysteries of the wider world. Plus, every episode comes with at least one conveniently packaged fact for you to share at your next dinner party. So check us out. Subscribe to There's More to That from Smithsonian Magazine and PRX and find out how much more there is to almost everything. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth.
1: So one question that comes up a lot in the group is how safe is it to travel alone as a woman? And the places that people ask this question for vary dramatically. So um, I just want to bring up two very contrasting cities in in opposite parts of the world pretty much that people have both asked whether it's safe to travel to alone. One is Paris, and one is Mexico City. And Betsy and Megan, you were both very familiar with those cities and have both traveled alone in them quite a lot. So Betsy, I don't know if you can speak to Paris
5: first. Yeah, sure. I mean, so I lived there for four months, and I was living um, in the south in the 14th. Um, It's a super residential neighborhood. And I was a student there, so I'd be going out often very late or coming back early in the morning or what have you. And I would probably deploy the same advice that I would give to anyone going out in a major city in the US, like in New York, is just to exercise a reasonable amount of caution, to know where you are, um, to make sure you're walking in lighted areas, like well-lit areas, late at night. Um, If you're getting in the metro, I would probably suggest like looking for a car where there are more people than not. Um, I think just taking like all of the usual precautions. Yeah, I would yeah. also say just that with the
4: protests that have been going on, that I know have been causing concern for travelers of all ages and genders uh, looking to travel to Paris. The key is to know that they're happening in a pretty specific part of Mm -hmm. the city and double checking with the embassy that's in whatever city you're going to. The one in Paris is super communicative about where things are happening, what you need to do to take precautions. But it's a huge it's a huge city in the same way that New York is a huge city and something happening halfway across the city isn't going to affect your time in Versailles or in the
5: It in is the big. I, I don't know if I would say huge. I mean, it's like you can probably walk across Paris like in a day. Yeah, I would think- be very <laughs> tired. <laughs> I've done it. I mean, it's, it's a good time. Yeah, I was tired, but it's fun.
2: I feel like <laughs> Paris has gotten a lot of bad press around yeah. its attacks and which it has had. I don't want to be blase about it, but I have never. I we go back once a year. Um, I've never not felt safe there. I may walk through the Marais and see armed guards, mm-hmm. but that happens to me on my way to work. So, I know I work in New York, and I know this city has its share of problems too. But I would, I would tell everyone listening like Paris is great. You're going to be okay and Paris. Knock on wood. You never know what happens somewhere, but like Paris is surviving and. I think you'll have a wonderful experience if you go any time of year.
5: watch out for pickpocketers. Yeah, you get pickpocketed? I know people who've gotten pickpocketed. Like, on my trip. And mm -hmm. I also,
4: I mean, yeah, and I think that that's that's something that, especially if you're going to really touristed areas, take special care to be aware of like where your stuff is and make sure everything's zipped Mm -hmm. up and all that jazz yeah it's using basic common sense exactly
1: and you know treating everything with a slightly skeptical eye but to laura's point about paris you know paris has had a rough time in the last couple of years but so have a lot of european cities and you know london has also had its fair share of terrorist attacks lots of people were asking me about this time last year whether it was safe to go should they go somewhere else instead and of course, they should still go to London. I mean, you can't predict when this stuff is going to happen. You can't control it. Right. It is alarming. I just strongly believe that you can't stop living your life and doing your, those things just because of an if.
2: hundred mm-hmm. percent. Don't let them win. You know. I was also like, I don't know, my pe- all my
1: friends and family lived there. <laughs> they seem they seem fine. <laughs> my mom just went to the shops. Yeah.
4: yeah. Um. And I would think with Mexico City, a lot of the questions that come out of should I go, should I not go, are State Department warnings that come out for certain areas of the country that get people worried about whether or not they should go to Mexico City. What would you say to that, Megan?
3: I mean, zooming out, I feel like I have, I take some issue with this question. I think it's super fair to ask, but I think the question of is something safe, it's like beyond State Department warnings, it's really about a feeling of safety and people want to know if they're going to feel safe somewhere. And I think that's, So personal that I think, you know, when you ask a Facebook group or even if you ask friends, you're going to get conflicting answers. So I think with Mexico City, you know, that's it's definitely true that Mexico, all the time, there are, you know, State Department warnings, usually for states that have a lot of issues with drug cartels or um, very localized violence. And I think, like, if you look at Mexico right now, you know, certain states like Michoacan and Guerrero have, like, really high, like, you know many mexicans will not go to those areas right now if they don't have to and they're not near mexico city and when you look at a blanket, you know, warning of mexico's being dangerous it's it's not mexico city and i think you know unfortunately things happen in popular beach areas and then that confuses people even further but i think what I would say with Mexico, like on the whole, is look at look at State Department warnings, look at a map, and like understand the places that are being talked about, and where things are happening, and where you're going. And they're probably not near each other because Mexico is huge. Um, and that, I mean, you could apply that logic to most countries and and most cities. And I think with Mexico City, like. For a long time, people were, you know, in the past decade, like kind of more scared of Mexico. A lot of um, American travelers, and in the in the past, like five years, it's really become a cool spot. It's an international city, and people are going again. So I think, you know, kind of similarly to Paris, like exercise big city caution. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, if you're in the really tourist in the not even touristy but popular areas that travelers love, like Roma or Condesa, you're gonna feel. Probably safer than you would in New York. Um, They're like beautiful neighborhoods. There are security guards in places there need to be. There are a lot of people. It's well lit. Like it's, you have, you know, you can call an Uber if you want to take a car home rather than a random taxi. There's Mm -hmm. kind of all the things you would have in a big city in the US (laughs) as well. And I think there's like an othering that happens when we talk about these places being safe. And it's like, it's really how you feel. And something that's always helped me too is. Talking to a hotel and the place mm-hmm. I want to go and the hotel I want to stay at, because they'll kind of tell you the precautions they tell people. It's like, do they say don't go out at night? Like, that's kind of more extreme. And, and that's how you can kind of meet. <laughs> or do they just say we recommend taking taxis at night? Like you can kind of get a gauge from hotels, I think, that f- feels really fair and a little more straightforward than other travelers, because it's really about how you feel.
2: That's a great point. I I think a lot of the State Department recommendations too say to stay away if, again, it's about your comfort level. I think you're Mm -hmm. spot on with that. Um, If you don't like big crowds, right, and you're worried about something happening there, the State Department has warned against uh, it was the Christmas markets over the holidays, Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes stadium events, uh, big, big concerts. But again, big city caution is a perfect way to describe that. I think that um
1: you know you mentioning the othering is also like very significant you know I, I going back to what I said about London, one thing that was really interesting is that you know around the time that London was suffering from lots of experiencing lots of terrorist attacks, so was Turkey, where a lot of my family also lives and people were asking me a lot more frequently whether it was safe to travel to Turkey than it was to travel to London, and really on at least from a terrorism level you you could really equate is relatively the same um, in risk and frequency in Istanbul and in London and so I think it is also taking a step back and asking yourself why you are asking those questions about that city or that country and maybe not other ones
3: well and the best example of that I remember a few years ago it was when like you know ISIS was really like all the time in the news it was just ISIS ISIS this like and I was traveling through Malaysia on the way to Indonesia, and I remember, like the day before my flight, this big security alert went out from the State Department. The UK, you know, sent out a similar release. So did Australia. So did Canada. All these countries saying not to travel to Indonesia. Um, they expected that the, the the Kuala Lumpur airport was had high risk, like, don't go near. And they were the two places I was traveling. And I had this big dilemma of if I should change my flight or if I shouldn't. And I had, like, a 12-hour layover in Kuala Lumpur. So I was really nervous. And I remember being there and being like, oh, my gosh, I've, like, gotten through two hours. I've gotten through four hours because I was so stressed. And while we were there was when the terrorist attack happened in Belgium, in Brussels, that giant right after following Paris a few years ago. And I remember sitting there and being like, Brussels? Brussels? Like, (laughs) Brussels is fine and I think when we see questions like this in the group of like I'm sure you see how safe is it to travel to Indonesia or Malaysia all the time and never for Brussels and it just like reminded me that you that, can't yeah. you can't predict these things and you can take necessary cautions you can do your research but the most horrible things that happen are so unpredictable that like you also can't avoid Malaysia or Indonesia for fear of something that might happen in a completely different part of the world
1: and yet obviously it- Female travelers do have to exercise a certain level of extra caution than men, unfortunately, just because of the way that the world works. But I will say that I have been sketched out or followed home in New York many more times than I have in other international cities. And so it can happen just as often in a sort of, in quote safe city as it can in a far riskier city. That said, mm-hmm. you also have to take into account cultural norms and where wherever mm-hmm. you are and how you are being perceived as a woman alone. Even if you disagree with it, you have to be sensitive to mm-hmm. that.
3: Well, and I think that then goes back to like the general safety of being safe at night walking alone. Mm-hmm. That kind of again is like doesn't really matter where you're going. Those are the things that as a woman become much more important is like just those general precautions that you should take everywhere.
1: And I will say when I arrive in a new city, regardless of what that city is, before I go out on my first night when I'm by myself, I will kind of look at the map and kind of get a gauge Mm -hmm. for where I am and maybe do a bit of Googling and just sort of figure out if there's any sort of turns that I shouldn't be taking just in case I end up staying out late because I've decided to get a drink on the walk home from dinner and end up suddenly lost in a part of the city that I don't know.
3: Yeah. And again, like, I always, whenever I go out at night, wherever I am, I tell the, like, go to the front desk of a hotel or I ask the Airbnb host before, like, I'm going to this restaurant and this bar and I kind of want to hang out in this area. Like, is there anything that I should think of that I would in another city? And they'll, they always have an answer for you.
2: So do you tell them that and then say, you know, if I'm not back tomorrow, do you, will you check on me? Do you I, take it that far?
3: I don't, but I do figure like people, I mean, if they, you know, you have contact with them, usually with, whether it's a hotel concierge or an Airbnb host, like you're probably going to talk to them in a couple of days when you're checking out or something anyway. Um, I share my location on my iPhone with, my boyfriend with my mom with my roommate and with like a few close friends which i do because i also i love avoiding texting like are you almost at the restaurant for dinner um, <laughs> but when i'm on trips i like always know that all these people can see where i am and i like want my friend emily shout out all the time i'll be on a trip and she's like what are you doing in cuba right now like she'll send cuz she checks it sometimes and like that makes me feel really comfortable and i also like knowing that my mom shares her location with me and i can always see where she is and and I think again, like that's why I love Uber. There's a record of whose car I got in at what time on what street, and like you can, you know, share your ride with people so they can see where you're going. And I just think features like that are amazing. One, one last thing, because I feel like Meredith has a, a lot to contribute to this conversation,
1: <laughs> um, is that I will also take the conscientious card from the front desk mm-hmm. and keep it with me just in case my phone dies and I need to like. And I can't order an Uber, and I'm like stuck. Mm -hmm. I can just go in a restaurant, and I can call the front desk, like like the olden days, (laughs) and get them to get a car to pick me up. It just feels
3: like an extra little safety net to have. And you have your address then written out for yourself and all that. Yeah, wave it in front of a cab driver's face.
4: (laughs) The only thing that I have to add is that you know when you're talking to the concierge about certain neighborhoods or calling ahead to say, hey, like what's the status of this thing that I'm concerned about. Like you were saying, Lolly, about your friends and family, like those people live there. And so like they have to go about their daily lives, whether or not you come. So it's in their best interest to be honest with you about what's going on. And and they probably have the best perspective to give you that advice and kind of shoot it straight uh, in a way that, again, friends who have had good or bad experiences might be a little... Twisted
3: on. Well, and it goes back to, like, we were actually talking about Mexico City earlier. Someone we know went there and ate something and got food poisoning. And she was like, ah, like, warning someone else going to Mexico City, you might get food poisoning. And I was like, well, I've been four times, and I've never gotten food poisoning. And I think it just, again, it's, it's really hard when you're t- asking a traveler just because if you're somewhere for three days and one bad thing happens, it really colors the experience. And it's totally fair to feel that way. But when you step back, it's like a local will have a more... Nuance, yeah Yeah. and just like we'll really be able to see the bigger picture of things which helps
5: i feel like i got that question a lot when i went when i in the times that i've gone to israel about how safe it is Mm -hmm. and i don't think i've ever felt unsafe in any part of israel that i've been in which i don't is you also drove along the edge of the west bank didn't you (sighs) i mean you had a crazy (laughs) trip (laughs) (laughs) yeah so like we were in gaza i guess we were we We're trying to get... I can't remember which way, where we were trying to go. I think... We were trying to get from Jerusalem to the Galilee. So I believe it was north. Um, Don't quote me on that. But so we were supposed to take this route that was kind of like more in the interior of the country. And I was looking at um, Google Maps, which my mom literally says to this day, because Waze was invented in Israel, that if we had used Waze, we wouldn't have (laughs) run into this problem. (laughs) Guys, I'm not kidding. That's an ad for Waze right there. (laughs) So instead of taking the interior route, which... Israel has these kind of like weird highways with these roundabouts in the center of them that you have to kind of like go around. It's it's very weird. Um, it's almost like a traffic circle, but like every half a mile that you have to kind of like drive around, it's weird. Um, we ended up taking this route that I was like, oh, it's perfect. There's no traffic. It's like totally direct. Like, oh mom, let's God. just do this one and we had to be like i don't know 45 minutes in and i started to notice that it looked like we were on the fucking moon it was just like a lunar landscape it was like mountains and like just beige rocks and i was like this feels weird um and like all the radio stations weren't working so that was my first indication and then i checked my phone and we were driving in the west bank and we passed like the entrance like the checkpoint to jericho and i was like oh and yeah i mean i don't i just feel like To both of your points about Turkey and Mexico City, like the first time I went to Israel was in December of 2016, and that was a month after the Paris attacks had happened. Um, And I, my best friend was, one of my best friends was living in Paris at that time, and I remember being so freaked out because I didn't know where she was, and she was living right there. And I just, to all of your points, I just feel like you can't predict when anything bad is gonna happen, and to not let that prevent you from going.
1: I mean, we're literally recording this podcast from the World Trade Center.
4: It's, <laughs> it's, it, it could happen anywhere. Yeah. So the next question is something that actually comes up a lot as well. And I think everyone has pretty strong opinions on in this room continuing that trend Um, (laughs) What are you talking about? But but it's something that you do have control over and it's deciding whether or not to travel to a country that you feel like you don't agree with their human rights policy or their women's rights policy and they may or may not have a history of human rights violations and I I think when we talked to uh, Jessica Nabongo two weeks ago, she had a good answer because she is traveling to all 195 of UN recognized countries. And so she's visiting places like North Korea, and that's part of her journey. Um, for most of us, though, that's a choice that we get to make decide whether or not we would go and visit places that we don't necessarily feel comfortable with their governments.
2: What would be your response to that question? I feel like I would want to do like a little armchair chat with that person, right, and say, okay, why do you want to go there in the first place? Um, have you hit every other country on your list, and you are seeking a new adventure? Um, is there something about this country? Maybe it's the Philippines, and you really want to go to the beaches, the islands, but you're not crazy about the politics, um, which has come up. We've had that conversation in our office a lot. Um, I think We published a story. We I did think. publish yeah. a story about it. I think it comes down to your Personal gut check, and if being in that place, experiencing that culture, meeting the people will feel it makes you feel like you will better understand it and give you greater clarity around something that feels kind of off, wrong, foreign at the time. Then, by all means, go. Um, but if you're questioning it, when in doubt, leave it out. Just why bother? <laughs> Look at her like I,
3: rhyming, <laughs> like nursery rhyme. It's
5: <laughs> like a beat here. poetry. <laughs> section, this a
3: whole bad, thing. a bad beat yeah. poetry. What I was going to say, like kind of to your point, Laura, is I think some people need to like kind of look at their motivations, what they're trying to get out of it and think of it from that perspective. And I actually try and think a lot about the people who live in the place we're talking about. And I think, Meredith, you made a good point of like all of us in this room get to choose which of these places we go. There are a lot of people who live in these countries that we're talking about, these countries that have crazy human rights violations. They have state funded genocides right now. And... I went to Myanmar a few years ago, and I think that was something I really thought about for a long time before I went. And it was before like the Rohingya genocide was making the front page, but I knew about it. And, um, and some people did too. And I I knew how bad it was when I was making the decision to go. And I think a reason I ultimately went was because I felt like you have this country with all these people who are being cut off from the world and they're like living a reality that they don't want. They you know, they most of them don't have a part in this horrible thing that's happening. And I think, like, if you can go and try and put as many of your tourist dollars in the pockets of, like, average people and not the government or not whoever is doing these horrible things, like, you empower them to have more freedom in their lives, and you, like create a bridge that might not be there especially in countries where there's censorship or they don't have as much access to internet and I just think there would be nothing sadder than living in this horrible reality and then having no contact to the outside world and no one to like bear witness to what's happening beyond journalists and reporters and I, I think when we've had this conversation so many times I always end out with like I think if you want to go and you can be conscious every time you spend money and choose what to do like It's just, there's a benefit to local people that isn't there otherwise. And
4: I would also just gonna interrupt the conversation and just gonna apologize for the drilling that is happening (laughs) while we are recording this podcast. It just started.
1: I don't know, is it upstairs? Is it downstairs? (laughs) I can't even tell.
3: It feels like it's everywhere. (laughs) To the point though, like, I think an exception you might make is like North Korea where you literally have to go with someone who's working for the government and your dollars are only going to the government. Like that's a different thing. But I think for the most part, most countries, like, you can go and support local people.
1: Yeah. If your experience is being filtered by that authoritarian government, then all you're really doing is supporting their, them and their their aims. But at the same time, if you can, like you said, if you can go in and you can give your tourist tourist dollars and you can actually, like, see and experience, like, real parts of that country, you're doing what a lot of these governments don't want people to do like they're isolationists they don't want people to enter their country and show different ways of living and open you know open discourses with the people that live there and maybe lead them to question leadership well yeah or get to share their
3: experience like to have someone look at me and be like these are all the problems i'm dealing with and and hear like no one's talking about it and i want someone to listen to me like that's it's really powerful i guess to get to listen to someone and And yeah, you're doing what the governments don't want. On the flip side, you know, going back to what you
4: were saying about how, you know, someone feeling safe is a spectrum. And that's a completely personal thing. I think that if you don't want to go somewhere because you don't agree with whatever it is that they're doing, like, don't don't go like it is perfectly okay to make that decision for yourself. You don't have to. Share it with everyone else, but but I think that again, like if you feel like going to Saudi Arabia right now does not fit in with how you want to live your life, how you want to spend your money, whether or not you're trying to spend it responsibly with the right people,
3: then it is really okay for you to go somewhere else. Also, with the safety questions, when we talk about in the group, I think sometimes people are looking for definitive answers that can kind of give them peace of mind on what to do next, and I guess the point is there aren't like black and white answers to any of this. And it it all is a spectrum and it's also personal. And I think that's why sometimes when these things come up in the group and you know, like when I'm trying to moderate these conversations, it's really complicated because it just is so personal and there never is one answer, but it's like worth having a discussion about.
2: And it's, it sounds like the way we're talking about it, it's a choice too. we are electing to go to places on leisure vacations, but maybe you work for an organization that it doesn't give you that choice. Um, I think Meg, your point about being conscious of where your money goes and maybe checking organizations that are working with Amnesty International or other, um, nonprofits that are supporting locals, like be conscious of how you spend your dollars. That's the best way you can do it responsibly, I think.
3: And I would say on a like group level, if someone wants to do something that differs from what you would do in the situation, like There's no shame in that. I feel like that's the message to social media. Like our community, everything is like, if someone has an opinion that's different than yours, like they're all okay. And it's also okay to feel unsafe in places that everyone else says are fine. Like you're like, We haven't
2: even talked about New York. Every single one of us was like, I felt safer there than home. (laughs) here. And like, okay, should people come to New York? How's that for one more question? (laughs) I
1: mean, obviously they should. Bloody love New York. (laughs) It's great. But I think there's something to be said with, you know... Some people may take issue with the current U.S. foreign policy or the current U.S. leadership. And it is their choice whether they want to come here or not. You know, there were all those stories after the election that tourist numbers to the U.S. and to New York were dropping. And so it's sort of you've got to have a little bit of
3: introspection as well and think, well, are people coming to my country? Well, and this up when we post this in the group. Whenever someone says, is Morocco safe for travelers because our group is so international, women chime in and they're like, I don't know if I want to go to the US. And I don't know if I want to support the US government. And it's just it's, you know, it, it kind of all just depends on who you're asking.
1: You know what my little bit of act of rebellion is here in America? I hope they
4: don't rep- deport me. <laughs> um, but, um, You're in, saying it on a podcast will yeah. be on the internet forever.
1: In JFK, they, I've noticed they have this horrible stand in Hudson News where they have chocolates with Trump's face on it. <laughs> And so every time <laughs> I catch a flight, I turn them all face down
4: because I have time to kill. <laughs> and no one has ever stopped me. <laughs> amazing. Uh, well, with that, yeah, I feel place. like it that's a perfect nice place to end. Um, Amazing. Well, thank you guys so much for sharing your advice. If people have other questions that they would like to ask you, where can they find you on social media?
2: Laura? I'm on Instagram at Laura underscore Redman and Twitter
5: at Dannon825. I am on Instagram at Blumenthal 70 and sporadically on Twitter when something's happening at the Oscars and I want to retweet it <laughs> <laughs> at Meg- the, same hash- uh, the same handle. So get Megan. ready for February.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and Megan? I'm at Spirelli on Instagram. Amazing. Laleh? I'm at
4: Laleh Hannah. On Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> I'm at oh hey There Mayor. Um, we hope you enjoyed our first ever live podcast last week. Uh, we had an amazing time in DC.
3: I'm jumping in. This is Megan. Um, I want to jump in because I was. Uh, helping them host the live podcast, up, But I think for the first ever live podcast, it was such a great experience. So we're definitely going to do more of those, I think. And thank you got to sh- everyone who showed up
1: on a very cold Friday night in DC in January. It was very appreciated.
4: I mean, just to everyone who said, I recognize your voice. I would like to say thank you. Yeah, yeah I agree. It's, <laughs> it's a little creepy, but I like it a lot. Our ego everyone has got loves- a little inflated. We started <laughs> calling ourselves the talent. But yes, keep an eye out in the Facebook group and listen in. Uh, We'll keep you guys updated on any future live podcast episodes. And we will have meetups coming up over the next couple months. So definitely keep an eye out there
3: too.
0: From foreign Policy, I'm Rena Ninan, the host of the Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women. Over the past few years, we've looked at how women around the world are changing societal norms to increase their economic power. This season we're focusing completely on girls, how they're pushing for a brighter, more powerful future and what the rest of us can do to set them up for success. Join us for stories about girl power, young women who are fighting for change to give themselves a chance to live a life of their own choosing. That's season six of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, wherever you get your podcasts.